Well, we're going to deal with some uh, pretty difficult material, and I'm going to invite you to pray with me right now that God would speak to us specifically. Would you bow? Father, we come before you with our, uh, our heads and our hearts focused on you. We've spent time doing this ancient tradition of putting deacons in place to lead in the area of serving, and we've taken time to sing, and we've shut aside things that will distract us like our cell phones and our schedules and all those things, Father, that can take us away from being fully focused on you. We put those aside for this moment. So we ask that you would speak to us. Where my words fall short, I ask that your Holy Spirit would fill in the blank. Where you need to bring conviction, Father, I ask that you would bring conviction. And where you need to bring encouragement, God, I ask that you would bring encouragement. Speak to us specifically through your word that was written down for us all these years ago that is still alive and active today. God, we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Our world is infested, and I don't mean with bed bugs or mosquitoes or whatever might plague you. Our world is infested with relativism, especially here in the United States. I know it's common among other countries around the world as well, but relativism sees gray where there's actually black and white. Relativism causes people to check out and say, "Ah, I'm not sure that I can land on a position when indeed God lands on a position. The disciples encountered a setting like that when they were talking with Jesus. There was a group of several thousand people gathered around him. And we studied this in John chapter 6 several months back in which Jesus had individuals who were watching to see if he was going to walk on the water again or if he was going to make some more fish appear or bread out of nothing. And when he didn't do that but then started saying hard things to them that they didn't agree with, they bowled out. They moved, they left, they didn't want to have any part of him. Look with me up on the screen at John 6, 66, and you'll see this. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, you do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. See, Simon understood, like the other disciples, there's black and white when there is no area of gray and people see gray. And so Jesus, you get a chance later today, look at John chapter 6, he said some incredibly hard things to those individuals about who he was and what he expected from them. And they didn't like what he had to say. So they decided to take off. And they never came back again. It was a decisive action, we understand. But the 12 stayed with him. Where most see gray... And that's the infestation I'm talking about, this relativism. God speaks in terms of black and white. God's word is absolute. It's definitive. Its instructions are true. It's unconcerned with political correctness. And therefore, it's unafraid to confront individuals about where they're at in relation to God and the reality of a condition. And here's the result. The result is that Scripture makes a really clear distinction between those who are with Jesus and those who are against Jesus, as you're going to see in the text this morning. If you brought your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to open up to John chapter 15, and we're going to deal with some pretty hard material. 
Um, just to catch up where we left off last week, we saw Jesus leaving the upper room. It's the night before he's about to be arrested. The disciples are on their way to the Kidron Valley and the Garden of Gethsemane. And they've got a journey ahead of them. It's not very long, but in the midst of it, Jesus decides to have an extended conversation with them. What you're about to look at is that extended conversation. They're on their way to where he's going to be arrested. The soldiers already have the arrest warrant. It's in their hand. They're walking with Judas. They're about to intercept him. And this is the conversation that takes place in John 15, verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another, just as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now, this is the second time he said that same thing. We just saw it last week and the week before in the upper room at the Last Supper. He gives this, quote-unquote, new commandment. And I tell you, honestly, those are pretty frightening words. They're intimidating when you look at them closely because he says, just as I have loved you, meaning I have the responsibility to love you the same way that Jesus loved me. And vice versa, you back to me. So those are frightening words because I understand the length that Jesus went to to demonstrate his love for me, that he laid down his life. It doesn't mean that we can or that we do love in the same degree of perfection that Jesus does, but that we can love in the same degree of sacrifice, sacrificially. Let me remind you that Ephesians 5, 2 Paul wrote this, walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. And as we discovered last week, really only those who abide in Christ can love as Jesus loved. And that requires quite a bit of us, quite a bit from us as we discovered last week. So here's the truth. The future work of the church in the world, specifically I'm going to speak of new hope, the future work of New Hope in the Metro Lansing area really depends on the believer's attitude towards each other and how we act towards each other. How does the Metro Lansing area see New Hope? Paul wrote about this issue to the believers in Rome. There was a church in Rome that had been instituted, and Paul sat down and wrote them a letter. Look with me on the screen, and you'll see Romans 13.8 from his letter to them. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. And then he starts talking about the Ten Commandments. Look how he links them together. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So when you're carrying out Jesus' quote-unquote new commandment, you're carrying out the fullness of the law of God. So the love that I have for you and that you have for me is like a tattoo on my back, on my chest, on my arms. It's something that stands out so that people can identify me according to what Christ is saying. I've been branded. I've been branded as the redeemed based on how they look at how I love you and how you love each other. Jesus said this very specifically, that the world is going to be an eyewitness to whether or not you are a resident of the kingdom of God. Look with me on the screen at John 13, 35. All men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Do you notice that doesn't say all church people? That's the entire globe, the population of planet Earth. All men will know whether or not you belong to the kingdom of God based on how we love each other. 
So apparently, our love for each other is our most powerful witness to an unbelieving world. Do you know that that's one of the characteristics of New Hope when I talk to people who are not part of our church, who've heard stories about the things going on here? You say, wow, you guys have a reputation of being a loving biblical community. That's an interesting place. Well, we're modeling what Jesus said. All men will know that we're his disciples. So he goes on to say in verse 13, greater love has no one than this, that you would actually go to the extent of laying down your life. So you want to see Jesus' measuring rod? His measuring rod is huge. He's saying, greater love has no one than this. Let them watch my example of what love really looks like. I'm going to lay my life down. Look with me on the screen at Romans 5, 6. This was written about there. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's really concise. Fifteen words in that first sentence describes the action of God on your behalf. What he did, the extent that he went to, while I was still helpless, God decided to redeem me. Now, I'm, I'm stuck on the same question I had two weeks ago, and I brought it up last week. It comes from verse 13. How is it possible for Jesus to command us to love each other? How can you command someone to love you? Love is an emotion, right? It's, a, it's, it's part of your feelings, Well, part of understanding this passage really hinges on the word friend, and we're going to get into the definition of that because he talks about, in verse 14, you are my friend. So we need to understand, what does he mean by that? Here's what I want you to keep in mind as we move forward. Christian love is not, at its core, an emotional feeling. It is an act of the will, a determination of the mind, and the proof of our love is not in our feelings as much as it is in our actions. True, emotions are involved. You just felt emotion when you sang that old hymn. Something welled up with inside you if you grew up in church. It was very familiar to you. It caused a reaction. Emotions are involved. We're not robots. But real Christian love is an act of the will. It's determination that even when I don't feel like it, I will do what God called me to do. So here's an example of this in verse 14. We move forward. Jesus said, you are my friends if you do what I command you. See, he didn't say if you feel what I command you. If you do what I command you. There's an action there again. If you do what I command you, verse 15, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. And before we talk about what it means to be a friend of God, let's talk about this issue of slave in the way that he uses this here. And he says, no longer do I call you slave. A slave is never given a reason for the assigned work that they've been given. They have no idea why it's been assigned to them. They perform it because they have no other choice. And we have a mindset, uh, especially because of the 1800s and the 1700s here in the United States, of what slavery is. It was a different connotation in the first century. When they heard the word slave, they would think of it differently. Now, a slave at that period of time had no other choice than to perform the work that was given to them, as was true in the time of Jesus. They had to do it because they had a taskmaster. But Jesus says, I no longer call you slave. Now, who's associated with being a slave in the Bible? Moses, Noah, Daniel, Isaiah, King David. They all called themselves the slave of God. New Testament. 
Peter, James, John, Jude, all those individuals said, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Why? Because they understand that a slave was bought at a price, is owned by a master, and is provided for by a master. However, a slave never has an intimate relationship with the master. The master never tells them what they're about to do. doesn't fill them in on their actions or on the game plan. And they're certainly not in an intimate relationship with the master. So Jesus says, no longer do I call you slaves. I have called you friends. Now the word friend has lost meaning in our modern day society because I can friend all of you on Facebook and you can unfriend me, okay? God will never unfriend you, all right? So we, we've lost a meaning and an understanding. What does it mean to have a friend, especially a friend in God? It is incredible that God calls you his friend because he called Abraham his friend. Now, Abraham was still his servant. Abraham did exactly what God asked him to do. God said, Abraham, I want you to get up from the Ur of Chaldees, which was the southern part of Persia or Iran, and move to a land that I will show you. And he made a huge journey. Went cross-country hundreds and hundreds of miles because God told him to. He was a servant of God. But God came to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah at one point in Abraham's life, and he said, should I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? He's my friend. See, a friend reveals his plans to his friend. And so we see that demonstrated with God's relationship with Abraham. That's what it means to be called a friend of the king. You have a relationship, and he shares his intimate information. Uh, one further explanation for you. In, in the Greek language, when someone was called a friend, like Jesus called it here, he's speaking of a friend of the court. The way the word that was used here, it, it describes the inner circle around a king or an emperor. Here's a quote I want to show you from William Barclay. He's a, a theologian and a historian, and he captures it very well. A custom practiced at the court of kings in the Middle East. At these courts, there was a very select group called the Friends of the King. At all times, they had access to the king. They even had the right to come to his bedchamber at the beginning of the day. He talked to them before he talked to his generals, his rulers, and his statesmen. The friends of the king were those who had the closest and most intimate connection with him. See, that's the kind of access that Jesus grants you. You can come to him at any time. So he's elevating you from being someone who's just seen as a slave, a robot, to a position of partnership. I call you my friend. And so since we're so close to him, we know his secrets. We know things that were not revealed to the ancients living before the time of Jesus because he's revealed mysteries in the New Testament, things that I'm going to show you in just a minute. So what we understand is that our friendship with Christ, number one, really involves knowledge. He lets us in on his plans. That's why he says in verse 15, all things I have made known to you. Imagine if all the things that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, when Jesus said, hey, I'm going to my father's home to prepare a mansion for you, and when I'm done, I'm coming back to get you. Imagine if he never told you that. See, his friendship with you lets you in on secrets. We have the book of Revelation that tells us about the end times. We spent a whole year studying that because God was letting us in on intimate information, things that he wanted us to know. Imagine if you didn't have any of that. See, we've been given the disclosure of the mind of God in black and white. His words right there. Now, the disciples were confused about this. They were having a conversation with Jesus way prior to the Last Supper. 
And they were trying to figure out, Jesus, why do you speak in parables? Why do you have these kind of conversations with the crowd? Look with me on the screen at Matthew 13, 10. This is the disciples speaking. Why do you speak to them, the crowds, in parables? Jesus' response, to you it has been given, it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. Now, if you picked up one of the bulletins this morning when you came in, the study notes that are inside there, on the right-hand side at the bottom, I gave you a list of the mysteries that are revealed in the Bible. Things like the, the rapture of the church, the Antichrist, and what Scripture has to say about him in 2 Thessalonians. There's mystery after mystery after mystery that's revealed. So that's like bonus material. We're not going to get into it this morning, okay? So it's just there for you to look at later. But there's all kinds of things that are revealed to you because... You're the friend of the king, and the king has shared information with you. He allows you into his bedchamber, as William Barclay wrote it. He trusts us with information. So let's go to verse 16, because now Jesus gives us a bit of an attitude adjustment. He says in 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain, so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. This I command you, that you love one another. Now, that's the third time he said that. Understand, this is just a brief period of time. He's barely drawing breaths, and he said it again. Hey, I'm commanding you. You're going to love one another. He, some, he really wants us to know. But let's back up before I get ahead of myself to the statement, you did not choose me. What's going on there? He's reminding the disciples. There's a reversal of custom that's taken place here. See, in the first century, when an individual wanted to follow a rabbi, and there were many rabbis running around Israel, some more revered than others, a young man would come to a rabbi and would present himself before the rabbi and say, "Uh, Rabbi, I have studied this, this, and this, and I have achieved this, this, and this in my life, and I would like to be your disciple. And the rabbi would respond, well, my Talmudin, I will decide whether or not you can be my disciple, but let's have a conversation. And they would interact back and forth, but a rabbi would not approach a disciple first. A disciple would always approach a rabbi. And Jesus has a reversal going on here. He said, hey, guys, you didn't come and ask me. I chose you. Let's get it straight. And that's the same thing in our relationship with God today. God promises in his word If it were not for God choosing us, we would be lost. He chose us to belong to his kingdom. So very specifically, what that does is it eliminates any spiritual pride that we might have on our own behalf. But he emphasized by saying, I've appointed you. Now, you just watched that happen if you got here early enough for the service. We we appointed or we ordained some deacons and deaconesses. That's the word that Jesus is using here. I have set you apart For a specific purpose. What's the purpose? That you would go and bear fruit. That applies to every one of us, New Hope. Every single person who calls New Hope their church home or wherever they might go to church at, God has said, if you belong to me, if you belong to Jesus Christ, I have set you apart for one purpose, that you would bear fruit. And as we saw last week, if we're not bearing fruit, he's going to take us and set us aside Because we're supposed to be actively doing something for the kingdom. We can't stand by and watch the world walk into hell and do nothing. We've got to engage. There is no bench time. So that's what he's calling us to do. And he says in verse 16, I want your fruit to remain. Fruit that would remain. What is that? 
Every time you talk about the kingdom of God, you share your relationship with Jesus Christ with someone. And that person is led into a relationship with Christ themselves. That's fruit that remains. It's not fruit that perishes. It stays on into eternity. So he links that together as a repeat of verse 7 when he says, whatever you ask, I'm going to do it for you. Once again, he's bringing up prayer. Just like we saw last week. Why does he do that again? He's emphasizing there's a really critical link between you bearing fruit and talking to your heavenly father. Certainly, if your friend is the sovereign of the nation, you're going to come to him and share your burdens and your needs with him. Well, your God is the sovereign of the universe, and he calls you his friend, and he wants you to come to him with your burdens and with your needs. So there's a critical link between you being effective in what you do and talking to the sovereign, the one who rules. Now, we're going to get into some really dicey material now because Jesus balances all this comfort stuff he's just talked about with a huge warning about the hostility that is waiting for them. You ever have one of those driveway conversations with your dad? You're, you're leaving, you're backing out of the driveway in your car, and he comes running out the door. Hey, wait, wait, did you check the tires? Did you check the oil? Don't tell me I'm the only one that's ever done that with my kids. Dads, can you relate to that? Oh, come on. I know at least one. Okay, Brian. Brian's being honest. Okay. I've run out the door and, and said, hey, do you have your cell phone? Don't forget to call me when you get there. And they always seem to forget or they choose not to. I'm not sure which yet. But those driveway conversation, what takes place in a driveway conversation? Last minute reminders. That's what I see going on here. These last minute reminders. Hey, I want you to check the tires. Check the oil. Do you have enough gas in the car? The world's going to kill you. That's, what he, that's how hard the shift is. Jesus gives him all this comfort and all this concern, and then he goes to verse 18 and watch the hard shift. Verse 18, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. Now imagine you're one of the disciples and you're walking to the Kidron Valley. You've just had the Passover dinner with Jesus, and he's talking about all this comfort and the promise of heaven and all of a sudden, he turns the table and wants you to know you're going to be hated. Now, I look at that verse, first of all, this last week, and I'm processing and wrestling all week long with this question, not necessarily for myself, but for all of us who are believers. What does it say about my walk with Christ if the world hates Jesus, but it really loves me? Let that sink in. What does it say if the world hates Jesus? That it really kind of likes me. I'm kind of popular. That causes me to step back and say, wow, have I evaluated my walk properly? So we've got this word world here. What's it referring to when Jesus says, if the world hates you? It's referring to the mass of society who stand opposed to God, in some cases hostile to Jesus Christ, or in many cases just uninterested and have no care whatsoever. The one who stands opposed to Jesus is much more definable. You can see those individuals because they pop out in society. But here's the truth. The world at large hates Jesus, as you're going to see come out of this text in just a minute. 
Now, you may look at that and you say, well, did Jesus really mean hate? I mean, is it kind of like they didn't like him or he wasn't friendly enough? What, what did he mean? Well, he actually mean hated. Let me show you the word that he used here, the Greek word, meseo. And this me- word means to detest. Now, this comes from the one who's had individuals pick up rocks who are ready to crush his skull. This comes from the one who's within 24 hours of having his beard ripped from his face, his flesh peeled from his body, who will strip him naked and mock him before hundreds of people. He knows what it is to be hated, and he uses the word hate, because when they did these things, they did it with grinding teeth. They hated him. It was that intense. That's why they wanted to kill him. Now, the world assumes this attitude because it rejects all who do not conform to its lifestyle. That's the root of where it really comes from. Where does that stem from, though? Why is that prevalent in our society today? Why do individuals get ticked off at the Jesus conversations? Well, first of all, we need to remember that Satan hates God, and Satan is called the ruler of this world. So since Satan hates God, that equals that Satan hates the people of God. Did you know that you are a target for Satan? He is on the prowl looking for you. That's what we're told through Scripture. Look with me up on the screen, 1 Peter 5.8. He, meaning Satan, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Now, a lion has no mercy whatsoever. He doesn't care. He just pounces on his prey and shreds it. All he's interested in is consuming it. And we're told that Satan, the ruler of this world, hates God, so therefore he hates believers. And the world resents believers because godly lives condemn evil works. You ever come into a conversation, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you maybe walk into a party environment and people are talking and milling around, all of a sudden the Christian walks in the room and they get quiet. Oh, come on, that happens to me all the time. Okay, maybe it's a pastor thing, all right? All right? So I walk into rooms and people are having conversations. It always leaves me wondering, what were they talking about? I mean, they don't even want to talk about it in front of me. It doesn't happen all the time, so don't stop talking when I walk up to you. You're going to wonder. Okay, I'm going to wonder what you're talking about. But we understand that a believer, a righteous person, they are an abomination to wicked people, according to what the Bible says. Look with me on the screen, Proverbs 29, 27. He who is upright in the way is abominable to the wicked. That's King Solomon writing that. Well, that's Old Testament. Let's understand that this has its roots way, 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 way back in the Garden of Eden. That when Cain killed Abel, Adam and Eve's two sons went to war, and there was a murder that took place. Look at the results of this first murder. Cain was the evil one and slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Now, the opposite is true. The world applauds those who practice evil. Absolutely. They rejoice and celebrate when people practice evil action. You got your notes? Write down Romans one thirty-two and look at it later today. You'll see Paul wrote that specifically. They applaud loudly when people practice evil behavior. Unbelievers are really comfortable with other unbelievers. So I, this week I'm working through this and I started thinking, yeah, like the Academy Awards, the, the Golden Globes. 
this reward show is people rejoice when evil things are presented to the world in such a way that's so artistic. Yeah, they did a great job. Let's celebrate them. There's scripture being lived out. So here's the truth, church. We face a hostile, rebellious, increasingly aggressive, Christ-rejecting world. And that's the cost of being a disciple. In case anybody ever painted a a rose-colored picture for you about what it means to belong to Jesus, that's the truth of what Scripture says. There's a cost to belonging to Jesus Christ. So how how do we do this? How can we do this? What's the secret of victory? Well, the secret is the fact that the Holy Spirit indwells you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. He's the one that encourages you and gives you power and teaches you. He's the one that walks alongside you. According to what Jesus said, he's there to comfort you. You can't do it on your own. That's the truth of Scripture. Now, if you think the first part's been hard, Jesus pulls no punches with the next part in verse 19. And he tells the disciples the situation is going to be serious and extremely dangerous. Go with me to verse 19. If you were of the world, the world would love its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. I chose you out of the world, and the world hates you. So that means you've been set apart. Just as the deaconesses or deacons were set apart, God has chosen you and set you apart for a different purpose, a different life. The world system functions on the basis of conformity. If we will conform to world system operations, we'll get along with everybody. So I've narrowed down three pretty basic areas where I think if you conform, you'll get along with people. People will like you. As long as individuals, number one, follow the fashion trends. You just dress like everybody else and you don't disrupt the waters too much. You stay with 2012 clothing as opposed to showing up in something from 1985, you know. You're good, all right? So that's a real mild one. Here's the second one. Stay politically correct at all costs. I mean, don't rile the waters whatsoever. As long as you stay politically correct, you won't tick people off. And number three, here's the really hard one accept the value systems of the world. You do that, you're gold. You're good. You're good with everybody that surrounds you. And they'll keep talking when you come into the party scene because they're happy to have you there. We'll all just get along. But a Christian refuses to conform to the ways of the world. Right, church? Yeah. You did so much better than the 9 o'clock service for that. And the Saturday night service. I had to prompt them three times. The Christian refuses to conform to the world. That's what we're reminded in Scripture, Romans 12, 2. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. So there's this really cool Greek word that's associated with this issue of conforming. And it's kind of a hard one to say, suska matizo. Matter of fact, I'm going to make you say it. Let's get the first part. Suska matizo. And then we put the two together. Suska Matizo. You did great. You guys are sharp. So Suska Matizo is like something that was used when someone was pouring either liquid metal into a mold or clay into a mold to shape it and form it. 
And that's Jesus using this very specific word here through Paul wanting us to understand that's not who we're supposed to be. We're not going to be one stamp right after another conforming to the world system. That's why James wrote what he did in James 4.4. Look at this on the screen. Do, not, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. I don't want to be an enemy of God. So here's the truth. Just as Jesus' choice of you is his guarantee that you're going to one day join him in eternity, you're going to be in heaven and walk the streets of gold. That's his guarantee of you because he chose us in him and we belong to him. It's also a guarantee of an attack that if the world hates Jesus, they're going to hate us as well. We're going to see why in just a minute. But he leaves this last verse here with a bit of an encouragement. He said, if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Meaning there are some who will respond. Out of the masses of society, there are individuals who will choose Jesus and they will hear the message. I had a Bible college professor say to me one time, Mark, do you realize that there's a great potential that there will be a larger population of humanity in hell than there will be in heaven? That really set me back on my heels. Because by and large, the mass of humanity population has heard what Jesus has had to say and say, no, not going there, not interested, or just unconcerned and never spend time with it trying to understand what is he talking about. So it's true, the majority will reject the words of Jesus, but there will be some who will respond and will accept the message. And man, that brings joy to your heart. We see individuals respond to what they've heard that Jesus has had to say. Go with me to verse 21. This is where it begins to wrap up. But all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know the one who sent me. I found two major reasons why I'm, when I'm working through this text, two major reasons why the world has the attitude that it does towards Christians. Here's the first one. It'll be in the PowerPoint, but it's also in your notes this morning. First of all, Jesus said it. It's ignorance. And I don't mean that in an insulting way. They're, they're just uninformed. They don't know the one who sent him. So the world has no proper concept of God. And therefore, they can't evaluate God's actions. They're not seeing it through the Holy Spirit's eyes. So the ignorance is both intellectual and spiritual at the same time. And this is the major problem with, quote-unquote, world religions today. And if I haven't ticked off everybody, I'm going to throw in Islam and Hinduism and Buddhism at the same time, okay? So just bear with me for a minute. World religions believe that they know God. If you showed up in the first century and had a conversation with a Jewish person on the street or the Jewish leaders of society and asked them the question, do you know God? They would say, absolutely. The God of our forefathers is the God of Moses, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we follow him as adherents. Well, what they really meant was they could quote chapter and verse. But Jesus said, point blank, you do not know God, therefore you cannot know me. You have no relationship because you have not received me as his son. And religions around the world do the same thing today. They claim to know God, whether it's through Muhammad or Allah or Buddhism or Hinduism. They claim to know God, but they do not bow their knee to the Son of God. Therefore, they do not know God. 
It's not possible because Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So what's happened there? Satan has blinded their eyes according to Scripture, 2 Corinthians 4. So move forward with me because this last part we're looking at is going to be the toughest yet. Verse 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would not have sin. But now they have both seen and hated me and my father as well. So here's the second reason for the, the standards of, of the, this resentment attitude that the world has against Jesus. The second one is in your notes as well, and you'll see it on the screen. The resentment of Jesus' standards is encapsulated in that last verse. By everything he is, by everything he's done, he rebukes sin. And so what he's done is he's peeled away the layers and exposes hypocrisy, and he exposes rebellion against God, and people violently react to that. They don't want their sin uncovered. And so Jesus has stripped away all the excuses, and he exposes rebellion to God. And he's speaking here specifically of the sin of willfully rejecting Jesus in the face of full revelation. We've got all the information that we need, and people still turn their back on him completely. Now, we're talking about the most serious sin of all. Scripture calls it the unpardonable sin, the unforgivable sin. Now, specifically in context of history, we understand that this particular sin, Jesus, when he says they, 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 five times in that verse, he's talking about those first century residents in Israel who saw him, who listened to him, who watched the miracles. They had no excuse whatsoever, and they still rejected him. The Pharisees developed an opinion that because his works were so great and they could not explain them, they reasoned that because he could not possibly be from God, he must be from Satan. Look with me up on the screen. It comes from Matthew 12, 24. This is the Pharisees speaking. This man cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. What have they done? They've attributed his works to Satan. God, through Jesus Christ, raised the dead, and these people are so blind, they believed it's Satan at work. So Jesus' response to that was what? Look with me on the screen, John 12, 32. Whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So all the evidence has been presented. They have everything they need, and they're not willing to receive it and act on it. They made a decisive action. Now, while I believe theologically that specific sin, the unpardonable sin, what he's speaking there was geared towards the first century Jews who rejected Jesus, the principle still remains because a total rejection of Jesus in the face of complete revelation is an unforgivable sin. Everyone is going to have to stand before God on judgment day. Everyone who does not belong to Jesus Christ will stand before the white throne at judgment and have to give an answer for why they made the decisions that they did. We're told that they will not have any excuse whatsoever because everything that is made to be known has been known. And you would say, well, what about the individuals 
who never heard the name Jesus? What about that person living in China in 3 BC who never got a chance to hear what salvation is in Jesus? We're told according to the Bible in Romans chapter 1 when Paul made this brilliant argument about how man has no excuse before God. If you've never read Romans chapter 1 before, you need to read it. But here's verse 19 from that chapter, and I want you to see the reasoning that it really boils down to. Here it comes from verse 19, Romans chapter 1. Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So when you come into a social circle and you know your friends are involved in behavior that is totally contrary to God, they're living way outside the boundaries of what God intended. They are not sinning in ignorance. They're sinning with the floodlight of God shining down on them, which has revealed all of this information. They just choose to reject it and say, no, that is not for me. So look at Jesus' reasoning now in verse 25. This is where it ends. But they have done this to fulfill the word that is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. He's saying they fulfilled prophecy. King David, all the way back in the book of Psalms, Psalms chapter 69, verse 4, was looking forward in time when the Messiah would arrive, and he, he wrote about this moment. Jesus is quoting it. Let me show you it on the screen, Psalm 69, 4. Those who hate me without reason outnumber the hairs of my head. Jesus is quoting the Old Testament. Well, let's wrap this up now, verse 26, and he gives us some encouragement. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father. He will testify about me, and you will testify also, because you have been with me from the beginning. So there's the response to hatred. You come into an environment where you feel like you're the target, and, and people have picked you out, and you feel the hatred. Jesus right there just defined his expectation of you in that setting. Continue to witness. You get no free pass whatsoever. There's no get out of jail free card. He said right there in verse 27, and you will testify also. Now very interestingly, he adds on there at the end, because you've been with me from the beginning. He's speaking to the disciples. They've been there right from the very start and he wants them to know that they have to share with clear-headed thinking the facts of what they encountered when they walked with Jesus. So that's why Peter, way later in his life, when he's about to be executed, he wrote this, 2 Peter chapter 1. 2 Peter 1.16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now, interesting, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit will testify about me. How does he do that? He does that through you. And that's a source of encouragement, church. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to do this through your own strength. We don't have to face the world's opposition alone. He will testify about me. That's what he told us. So the message of the church is not political activism, the message of the church is not social reform. The message of the church is not self-fulfillment. The message of the church is Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. That's what we're told according to Scripture. 
That's the only way a man will be saved because there is no other name under heaven by which mankind should be saved according to what Scripture has to say. So here's the question we're left with. Why the violent reaction against the name of Jesus? I'll come back to that in just a minute because I want to leave you with a promise from Christ. Here's the promise, Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. So he got a blessing from God himself on you. But he follows it up very quickly by saying in Matthew 24, 9, they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Now, I'm aware it's 1220, but if you're thinking of your cell phones or your car keys, just hold off for a minute, okay? Why the violent reaction to the name of Jesus? You see somebody walking along, maybe at the office, and they walk into a file cabinet, and they stub their toe, or they hit their head on the wall. They don't say, oh, Buddha. Right? I mean, what's up with that? It's usually, Jesus Christ. Am I right? Where does that come from? What is the root of that? Why the violent reaction against the name of Jesus? Because he just said, they will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you. You will be hated by all nations because of my name. The disciples were all killed, some of them sawn in half, because of the name of Jesus, except for John, who lived out his entire life. Why the reaction? The world hates Jesus because he exposes their sin, and he confronts them with the reality of their ultimate future. Because my Bible reads just like yours, and this is what it says. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. That's in the last days. That means some will bow by force, even though they don't want to. They will see him and they will have to acknowledge who he is. Those of us who belong to Jesus Christ will see him and gladly bow at his knees. That's why the world reacts the way it does against you. Take courage. Jesus saw it coming. And he said the Holy Spirit's going to walk alongside you and encourage you. I'm going to pray for you right now that this week, whatever you face, you might be reminded of these things. Would you pray with me? God, I ask, and especially in light of the fact we have no idea what tomorrow holds. I don't know what this afternoon holds. But some of us in this auditorium and some that have been here in the previous services may come up against a prevailing force that seems to overpower us. God, would you remind us in that moment that this did not catch you by surprise and that individuals will continue to take shots at us just as they did against you, but that you walk with us and you are not surprised by it and that you are there to encourage us and comfort us. Father, we ask in that moment that you would give us the wisdom to know what to say and how to respond. We claim the promises of your word. Father, for this body gathered together right here at this moment, I ask that you would remind them of what you want them to know in the day coming in which they will not know what to say. Encourage their hearts, Father. It might even be this afternoon. God, we ask this in the mighty name of the one who redeemed us, the Lord Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, church.